revolución para que se asustan será para mejor es el pueblo entero el que ya está gritando viva la revolución Iranian nuclear weapons development they have turned the island into a communist hellhole the experiment in Venezuela has failed completely La bestialidad imperialista, bestialidad que no tiene una frontera determinada ni pertenece a un país determinado. Bestias fueron las hordas hitleristas, como bestias son los norteamericanos hoy, como bestias son los paracaidistas belgas, como bestias fueron los imperialistas franceses en Argelia. Porque es la naturaleza del imperialismo la que bestializa a los hombres, la que la convierte en fieras sedientas de sangre que están dispuestas a degollar, a asesinar, a destruir hasta la última imagen de un revolucionario, de un partidario de un régimen que haya caído bajo su bota o que luche por su libertad. Y la estatua que recuerda a Lumumba hoy destruida pero mañana reconstruida, nos recuerda también en la historia trágica de ese mártir de la revolución del mundo que no se puede confiar en el imperialismo, pero ni tantito así, nada. to episode 56, Unmasking Imperialism, Exposing Imperialist Propaganda and Mainstream Media. Today, in defense of Mao, Chairman Mao Zedong of the People's Republic of China, a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary, one of my favorite revolutionary heroes, somebody who 
is slandered all the time in mainstream media and bourgeois media. And today we are speaking in defense of Chairman Mao, similar to what we did with uh, Comrade Stalin in a previous episode, debunking some of the lies that he was a genocidal dictator who killed people for no reason, that he just woke up one morning and decided to kill 60 billion people for no reason, and that he purposefully did all these famines and was a monster. These are some of the narratives we're going to be talking about in mainstream media. And we're also going to be talking about his relevance for 21st century communist organizing. What would Mao say about social media? What would Mao say about the state of the left today? And also addressing some of the ideological Puritans who want to divorce Mao from the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China in the 21st century and divorcing theory from practice and having a very puritanical view of Mao Zedong. Today's guest is my comrade, my homie, Josh Finn. Josh is a revolutionary communist from New York. Shout out to New York, my home state. He is the host of In Defense of Liberation, a show working towards educating people on a true proletarian revolution. The link to In Defense of Revolution is in the description. For iTunes, please subscribe and maybe give him a five-star review. Uh, help get the show out there. Really excellent podcast. How's it going, Josh? Things are well, my friend. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always great to be able to talk to you. Um, I'm very excited for this conversation. I'm very excited for uh, what threads this conversation will lead us to, especially in discussing uh, organizing in the 21st century. Most definitely. And shout out to everybody who's watching and listening to Andres, to Steven, to Chris, to Cancerbox. Y'all have some funny names. Cancerbox is one of them. My foot in your ass is another one. Uh, where <laughs> Pilgrim. Yeah, I'm sure that's not your your real uh, Gmail name. Uh, Steven, <laughs> Leon, Oscar, shout out to everybody who's watching, listening. I think this will be a good introduction as well for people who are just getting into communism to learn about Mao, who he was, and his ideological contributions. Shout out to Itzel, to Isaiah Madrigal. Just to give some quick background on Mao, a, a very quick overview right, of his life. Mao was born on December 26, 1893 in Hunan province, China. The thing that's really important to know about the time period in which Mao was born is that this was known as the century of humiliation in China, the 1800s. This was the century during which China was at one of its lowest points in history. Millions of people were starving in poverty. There were famines every other five years. And most importantly, the Western imperialists imposed the drug trade and drug influence on the Chinese people in what became known as the two opium wars in which the French, the British imperialists smuggled drugs. They planted drugs in India where they colonized, they, they grew uh, poppy and they exported it and brought it to China and they forced the Chinese people to import this opium and drugged the entire country, impoverished it stole all of their wealth, resources, labor, and China was in a very bad place. And even in a city like Shanghai at one point, which was controlled by the British and, and Hong Kong as well, you had signs that said no Chinese or no dogs allowed on their own land. So China at this time was extremely downtrodden, oppressed, marginalized. 
And that is the context in which Mao was born in China. And Mao was a communist revolutionary who founded the People's Republic of China in 1949 until he passed away, sadly, in 1976. Mao was the son, the son of a peasant family, working class family. And early on in his life, he was attracted to revolutionary politics. Initially, he was attracted to Bakunin and anarchism. And eventually, seeing the successes of the Soviet Union, seeing the successes of Lenin and Stalin in particular, and the five-year plans and industrialization, he was able to make the leap that I'm sure many of us have made as well, from kind of edgy, anarchisty teenager vibes to principled Marxist-Leninist scientific socialism, uh, later on eventually supporting Chinese nationalism, but from a communist, uh, proletarian nationalist perspective. And he was involved in many uprisings. The I'm going to mispronounce this, by the way, my apologies to my Chinese comrades, the Shanghai Revolution of 1911, the May 4th Movement of 1919. This is a time of great socialist upheaval all around the world, led by the socialist movements. Uh, and you had these nationalist movements that were rising as well, fighting imperialism, fighting the Western colonizers. And basically, Mao adopted Marxism-Leninism while he was working at Peking University as a librarian and eventually became a founding member of the Communist Party of China, the CCP, and participated in the Autumn Harvest Uprising of 1927. This is after the establishment of the Soviet Union, and this is the peak, the height of communist uprisings in the East in particular. And one thing that's interesting about Mao during this time period is that at the time, there was a Trotskyist faction of the Chinese Communist Party that was dominant in China, and they held the view that Trotsky had of permanent revolution that we have to wait until Western Europe has a revolution. We have to wait on Germany and England, and the revolution will not come from the peasants in the countryside. It can only come from the industrial proletarian. Mao flipped this, and he said, no, we can begin building socialism in one country, just as Stalin was able to in the Soviet Union, and begin to organize the peasants, organize the masses in the countryside, which at that time was seen as heretical by some of the puritanical Trotskyists who only focused on the urban uh, proletarian. And this is how Mao really became extremely popular, extremely uh, well-liked, uh, allying himself with the peasantry, allying himself with the most oppressed sectors of Chinese society. And at one point, the communists were temporarily allied with the, the Kuomintang party, the KMT, the Nationalist Party. They're kind of like bourgeois nationalists, but there was a left-wing faction within that. Uh, Mao and the communists temporarily formed an, an alliance with them uh, during the uh, Second Sino-Japanese War from 1937 to 1945. This is the height of Japanese imperialism. Japan was expanding all the way. China, which at that time, Manchuria, Korea, Philippines, they went as far down as Myanmar or AKA Burma. They were you temporarily allied against Japanese imperialism. And eventually once the World War II came to an end, once the Japanese imperialists were defeated, the contradiction once again surfaced. And from 1945 to 1949, you have the final offensive between the, the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party. And ultimately, 
with the leadership of Mao, with the leadership of Zhou Enlai and many others, Lin Biao, the communists were victorious. The communists liberated China, not only from imperialism, but also from bourgeois nationalism. The KMT, Kuomintang uh, reactionaries were forced and to escape, and they fled to Taiwan, which is part of uh, China, but the Taiwanese government allied with the West tries to claim itself as the Republic of China as a separate entity. And so on 1949, the People's Republic of China was established, led by the Communist Party of China. <clears throat> and Mao did some really amazing things in these initial years. Land reform, millions and millions of acres of land were redistributed, taken, confiscated from the landlords who were run by the Western imperialists who did not have the interests of the masses at heart and re redistributed to the peasants, to the working class. Drugs were eliminated from the country, opium, you know, in a revolutionary way too, not in the way that we see in the West of criminalization, but in terms of treatment, sending doctors. You have people who are former opium addicts becoming scientists and, and all of these, and engineers and all of these amazing things. You had also eventually the construction, socialist construction, uh, during the 1950s with the Great Leap Forward, industrializing. China is now the largest producer of steel in the world because of industrialization. The centralization of power, political power under the Communist Party of China. The, the Great Leap Forward was probably one of the biggest advances in human history at the time that aimed to rapidly industrialize China. Again, going from 1800s, feudalism, opium, colonization, horrible, you know, we talk about also as well, Tibet, we talk about the Dalai Lamas, we talk about oppression, some of the most horrible atrocities that existed in China, and Mao and the Communist Party of China were able to advance and bring the Chinese people to the 20th century under socialism with some amazing work. And obviously, there were some mistakes along the way, you know, even including Mao himself and, and the Chinese people are the first to admit that. But overall, Mao was a positive, progressive force for the world. And in my opinion, I think Mao will go down in history as one of the most important figures of the 20th century. I think he'll go down with figures like obviously not saying I endorse him politically, but Alexander the Great or Napoleon. Mao's going to be somebody who's going to be his name is going to be talked about for centuries moving forward because of his political vision, his action. He went from having organizing a small communist group of 20 people in the basement of a women's uh, college to now having not only the largest communist party in the world, but the largest political party in the world that is in the largest populated country in the world, leading the fastest industrialization lifting more people out of poverty than ever in human history. So many amazing things about uh, Chairman Mao, and that's why I have so much respect for him, and so does uh, Comrade Josh. Comrade Josh, anything I'm missing here? I know there's obviously, this is so much to cover, but anything um, that you think is important to mention re related to you know, uh, Mao, his early life, uh, the development, and some of the things you were mentioning before the stream? Well, you did a great job, I will say, of laying a lot of the historical context down. Um, it's difficult uh, to really go over 50 to 100 plus years of, you know, historical change and monumental ebbs and flows 
uh, in blips, but I would say that you did a fantastic job. Um, so in kind of hitting on a lot of what you said, <clears throat> you have to, uh, when we're under, when we're understanding what happened in China, the, uh, role that Mao himself played and, uh, uh, their own development of a socialist project, uh, and really lay it as you did in the historical context, because as you said, you know, for generations, the average uh, person within China was going to be subject to extreme poverty. They were going to be subject to uh, reoccurrent famines all throughout the 18 and 1900s. Uh, they were going to be subject to a lack of electrification. They were going to have to live in very rural, isolated areas, oftentimes without any forms of support, uh, dominated by feudal warlords, uh, landlords, and other uh, just kind of uh, mercenary type style uh, living in the sense that a lot of these feudal warlords went on to uh, aid the Japanese imperialists as well as the U.S. imperialists later on in the years to come. But before I get too deep, I will say a few things. Um, we have to understand in this context the revolutionary role of the masses uh, and how connecting to the masses was one of the most important things that Mao or really any revolutionary, if we look across the globe, uh, can really do. Um, when Mao was young, he grew up in a very poor rural area, as you said, and he saw the suffering of the farmers, of the serfs, of the peasants, and uh, he really actually, unlike uh, what you know most folks were enduring, he had a somewhat steady lifestyle. He had a, a family that was feeding him, that had land, that had you know uh, the ability to send him to school. And so having that framework while also being able to develop uh, educationally, while being able to see different parts of the uh, Chinese uh, environment, it really allowed, I think, Mao uh, very early on to, as you said, take a, a dissatisfaction with the way things were going. He was obviously very angry about the way in which the average person was suffering. And so he, uh, at the time, like you said, was a librarian and was really dedicated to uh, reading philosophy. He read a lot of bourgeois philosophy. As you said, he got into Bakunin. He, uh, for a period of time, uh, enjoyed Kropotkin. But eventually, once he began to make his way towards folks like Marx, Engels, Lenin, he began to kind of see the uh, qualitative difference in the analysis that they put out the concrete, uh, what we might call materialism, that was uh, really branded differently than just about anything he had read. Uh, in uh, the introductory course to Marxism-Leninism, Maoism, that Foreign Language Press puts out, they give a little rundown on a, of his life, and this is one of the most important points that he acknowledges in his life that made a qualitative change. Now, a lot of this came also from the period of time he was living in. Again, there was massive upheaval across the nation. There was all kind of different factions from which this was coming from. You mentioned the Trotskyists. You mentioned the Kuomintang, the KMT party. So you had kind of like a more bourgeois nationalist and then a more petty bourgeois uh, Trotskyist uh, approach. And then you had, uh, you know, kind of your anarchist circles and you had 
you're Marxist, which uh, Mao and few others were really heading the way. So as you mentioned in 1921, he was one of the founding members of the Communist Party. And in doing so, uh, the approach that they were trying to take was they were trying to make available to the people a wholly different mentality, a wholly different uh, concretization of their reality, because people were angry. They knew that. They knew that there was going to be change, but they also understood that in this way, if we actually want to resolve the issues that we're facing rather than put temporary band-aid solutions or simply transition power to a different ruling class, we have to give the people the tools to be able to do so. As you mentioned, Mao, unlike you know some other Marxists, uh, really saw the revolutionary necessity of the peasantry, of the poor, rural, uh, and exploited people who uh, really still to this day make up a significant majority within the Chinese population. And this is because, as we know, oftentimes colonized and imperialized nations are kept far behind in uh, different realities because it is uh, their exploitation and their suffering that benefits the imperialist core, such as Europe or the United States. So just real quick, finishing up on this, um, with, uh, you know, kind of getting an understanding of what was going on at the time that uh, you had your early fights between the KMT and the communists, then into your Sino-Japanese war, you have a necessity for a deep understanding of the reality in order to make correct decisions in allegiances, in uh, strategic, you know, decision making. And all of that came from a deep connection and a deep base coming from the masses. Now, ultimately, it is very difficult to involve, uh, you know, poor rural folks in uh, a lot of what we might consider organizing because of the exploitation and the suffering that they endure on a day-to-day -day basis. But in a lot of ways, what Mao and the communists did in the rural areas with land redistribution, it really made it so that this was uh, actively engaged with, actively attacked. They did not simply resign themselves to a situation that, oh, well, these people are you know, suffering. How are we going to get them to get involved? No. Uh, the communists armed the people, they trained them, and they took the land uh, in a way that was very similar to what happened in Russia, is very similar to what happened in Cuba, is very similar to what happens around the world when the people themselves take over because they realize we don't need some stupid referendum, we don't need a bunch of legislation to be passed, we need these people who are not using this land to get the fuck off, and we need people who know how to use land, who have been living on this land for generations, to be able to use this land to feed themselves and their community. And then they made that transition from land redistribution to uh, collectivization, recognizing that in fact now that the people had begun to uh, take private ownership of the land, they needed to avoid the small producer mentality that comes as capitalism is inserted and uh, private property is upheld. Now, I heard an interview uh, with Rev Left Radio from 2018 where this was discussed and his guest uh, mentioned that in some ways this was difficult because of the speed by which they had to make this transition from, uh, you know, a lot of these folks for the first time being able to privately own land to now being told that we have to collectivize everything. 
uh, a lot of people who were not uh, actively engaged with the party, who were still under, you know, different spells from capitalist or bourgeois mentality, or even a more feudalist uh, rural mentality, uh, led to some distrust uh, within the party. But ultimately, as we see today, uh, with the Communist Party being millions strong, uh, they have taken active approaches to solve these issues. Um, but that's really the base that we need to be working with, with uh, uh, an understanding of the early history of China and its, its revolutionary project. Well said. I think that's a great summary. And I'm sure Mao would have a lot to say now, especially with the evictions taking place, the moratorium on evictions coming to an end and people being forced into homelessness, the increasing rise of unhoused people across the U.S. and the world. And I think it's something that was brilliant about Mao is that he reached, you know, there's that expression that Lenin says lower and deeper. And I think Mao is somebody who really went to the most oppressed sectors of society. And it's no surprise that in a lot of movements around the world, the most oppressed sectors of society have been attracted to Mao and his politics <clears throat> because he wasn't somebody who was like a latte leftist, a soy Trotsky is kind of type. He was somebody who was very working class, very revolutionary and advocated for maintaining revolutionary discipline after the victory of the communist party or movement in a revolution. He says the revolution continues, the class struggle continues even after the communists take state power, which I think is is really brilliant. There's this video, Josh, on YouTube. If you look up Mao Zedong, it says it's called it's one of the first ones that come up. It's called Why Mao Zedong Was the Most Brutal Tyrant. This video has three and a half million views. So three and a half million people or probably less because I'm not sure how they count it, have seen this. And a lot this channel in particular is called like the infographic show. It's catered specifically to children. So the dominant narrative, the winning, the quote unquote winning narrative out there about Mao is that he was brutal. He was a dictator. He was a monster. People compare him to Hitler. They compare him to Mussolini. And this is a very dominant viewpoint among bourgeois media. And it's one of the reasons why we want to discuss this, because somebody who did so many amazing things like Mao for the working class, who died with nothing, no possessions, no property, no wealth, literally just the clothes on his back and did so many amazing things. He's treated like one of the most evil people in history by these bourgeois media outfits. So it's something that is just insane to me. And it, it just shows the inversion of reality. So I want to play a clip from this video. Again, this is called Why Mao Zedong Was the Most Brutal Tyrant. And we'll get some reaction from you, Josh, related to this video. In the Steven Pinker book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, a history of violence and an attempt to understand the darker side of humanity, the man who is the focus of today's show plays an almost starring role among the many of the other tyrants, criminals, and government-sanctioned sadists. He's sometimes called the worst mass murderer in the history of tyrants, but knowing the exact number of how many died due to his policies and those just murdered under the regime is not easy. That number is sometimes said to be about 40 million, sometimes we're told 45 million, and sometimes we're 
were told even as many as 65 million. It's hard to even imagine such a thing, and we might be reminded of the phrase sometimes attributed to, there are doubters, the tyrant Joseph Stalin. A single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. The reason the number of deaths changes of course is because getting access to records, if there is even a record of death. It's not easy, and it's also difficult to know who died as a direct result of Mao's policies and zero-tolerance attitude to critics. But historians haven't pulled the number out of hats, and there are ample, well-researched accounts of the devastation of Mao's policies, and also how his regime was sometimes incredibly cruel toward the Chinese people, especially dissidents. The historian Frank DeCotter, who spent a lot of time researching in archives for what went down during the Great Leap Forward, said Mao Zedong was responsible for one of the worst catastrophes the world has ever known. He said around 45 million people either starved or were worked to death or were beaten to death. It ranks alongside the gulags and the holocaust as one of the three greatest events of the 20th century. It was Pol Pot's genocide multiplied 20 times over, he said. We can tell you firsthand how this writer told a captivated audience at a literary festival that people were only seen as digits, things to move the great leap ahead. This historian, while researching his book, Mao's Great Famine, the story of China's most devastating catastrophe, explained to people that while looking through China's Public Security Bureau reports, he found some things that turned his blood cold. Coulter said that in these records of the provinces, he found that there were instances of children, hungry children, stealing potatoes. The rulers were strict about crime, and in one instance the child had his hands tied and was thrown into a river. Others were forced to work naked in winter as a punishment, and some were branded, others set on fire, while others merely had their nose or ears cut off. Perhaps the most disturbing thing was a record of parents being forced by officials to bury their children alive. But starvation killed the most people. To give you an example, Dakota writes that in one town containing around 250,000 people, 80% of the folks were deliberately kept away from the official canteens where the food was served. They were old or weak and so it was decided that they were a waste of space in the greater scheme of things and should be starved to death. That's how bad it was, and this information was taken from archives, not word of mouth. But before we talk about more misery, let's look at who this leader was. So many bullshit lines, so much propaganda in there. And uh, shout out to comrade David Silberg uh, said, uh, does, hold on one second. David said, does this author have anything to say about the additional millions of deaths due to poverty and famine in India? That's exactly right. During this time, you had so many millions of people dying in India from famine, from horrible atrocities by British colonialism, imperialism, in a very intentful way. And here's the thing, right? It's not to say that bad things didn't happen in China. It's not to say that every single person in the Communist Party of China or in the Chinese Revolution was good. Obviously, whenever you have a mass movement, you're always going to have individual bad actors within who may have done certain things but that is not in any way a reflection of the broader chinese communist movement and if you look at the documents of the chinese communist party especially the little red book there was very very strict measures against people who did anything like that anybody who tortured people or killed people unnecessarily or hoarded food or grain was dealt with very swiftly and by the people in mass tribunals. So I think that's important to mention, right? Because they're also, it's important to say that from the onset that obviously there were things that happened. Now, with that being said, there's no mention of all of the droughts, all of the horrible deaths that took place before the revolution, 
everything is just after the revolution. And they just cite this one guy, uh, Frank Dickutter, who's like the only source who's using these random anecdotes that are not even properly attributed. And just anybody can say this, right? Anybody can say, oh, I looked through these records. He probably wasn't even in China. And is just saying, oh, I heard somebody say that somebody's kid was set on fire. Somebody's ears were cut off. And I think that's really disgusting you know, to just follow this one European guy who probably wasn't even in there. The other thing to mention is that one of the quotes that was attributed to Stalin, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, is a complete misquote. And that has already been shown. There's a, a lot of great sites of uh, Stalin's mustache and and Harpal Brar has good content on Stalin. So many people, communists who have put information about Stalin, that quote is a fabrication. That quote is misattributed to Stalin and it just is repeated and and it's just crazy to see that. So um, it's all interconnected, but Josh, your analysis and reaction to that clip. So I'll start with saying that it was so bad that I had to start smoking. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, the guy's name was Frank. So that should tell you one thing. Um, and at the end of the day, even if, let's say, Frank went to China, he got in the provinces, he somehow got access to these probably government documents with all these statistics and, you know, accounts of what was to happen. And he came out and he wrote a book about it, right? In the way in which not only that Stalin quote, but as you pointed out, these statistics were brought up. There was absolutely no context in which these deaths took place. Now, he says in one instance, one instance, China at the time, 300 to 600 million people. In one instance, a child's hands were tied and he was thrown in a river. I don't know what the fuck was happening. That sounds awful. Why are you not talking about what happened to the millions of children who for the first time were getting fed, getting education, getting health care, getting vaccinations, getting everything that they required for a healthy human life for the first time in thousands of years? I mean, the history of China, it, you have child marriages, you have, you know, uh, a capitulation to imperialism. You have, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, you have reoccurrent famines because again, this is a nation that is now not allowed to develop for itself. For thousands of years, the average person was not able to grow food, cultivate a life that was able to sustain themselves. So famines happened all the time because people were not, getting what they needed from feudal landlords who were enslaving them. We understand that, I would hope, when we look at the way in which the founding fathers of the United States treated their slaves, we might be able to understand that, in this case, you know, rural peasants probably weren't the first in line for food. And when he mentioned in that, you know, uh, I, I loved how the animation took the old guy and just put him in the recycling bin i thought that was pretty <laughs> funny i don't know um but like again in that instance there's zero context as to what was going on it, in a period of time of collectivization one of the most common things was looting you're seeing that in la right now on freight trains because people are so incredibly you know poor and incapable of providing themselves with things that they have to steal 
right? But we'll punish them and we'll condemn them in media, again, without any context. In this case, when you're talking about, you know, uh, collectivization of resources, this was for the benefit of people. But there were always, as you mentioned, going to be individuals who had individual interests that they were playing on. We see this in Russia. We see this all across the African continent. We see this in Asia. We see this in America. In, you know, any reality, there are people who, as we know, put their own interests before the interests of the whole. And so in that same light, I would like to talk about the fact that a lot of what is done incorrectly in analyzing the Chinese socialist project and the revolution that the Chinese people have led is this romanticization of individuals. And we see this on every level. We see this on the left. We see this on the right. And it's a complete and utter misunderstanding of how history develops. Now, as Marxists, we try to take what is called a historical materialist approach. Mao himself, uh, just to speak real quickly, wrote extensively about this as well as dialectics and understanding how, you know, really taking a concrete study of the reality that people were involved in was the best way to then be able to give the masses the ability to not only mobilize, but mobilize in a revolutionary way because they had the answers. They had, in a lot of cases, the support, which we do not see here in the United States. When the masses rose up 2020 with the, you know, uh, what's coined oftentimes the Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, against police brutality, against the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others, uh, we see no support by not only the state we see active repression uh and and you know death tolls uh but we also don't often see any support from outside sectors of the communities that are often most exploited and oppressed in, in this way for example we really do not see in the way that the chinese people have taken up today a unity among people that is so desperately necessary to building a socialist project. You can sit here and maybe spend a whole hour, as you said, uh, talking puritanically about this idea of socialism. But as we mentioned before the stream, there's a quote that's attributed to Engels where he says that when you are when you're theorizing or reading theory about socialism, you're reading about a final product which does not necessarily exist in reality. But if you take a scientific socialist approach, you can take a starting point by understanding materially where you're at and also theoretically where you're trying to go and mobilize the masses to get there. Because otherwise, you have what happens in a lot of countries, whether you know uh, capitalist, socialist, or otherwise. Uh, you have a group of you know small uh, a small percentage of the society that dominates the uh, goings on of the economy, the military, the politics, etc. Whereas in socialist nations where they are able to properly organize and mobilize the masses, you see a completely different reality that can't be ignored when we're talking about this process. Because ultimately, if we want to talk about you know, everything that this video had to uh, mention, 
we would have to spend hours upon hours contextualizing each and every statistic, analyzing the way in which the history was impacting the period in time when the Communist Party was ultimately trying to still take power from feudal landlords, the nationalists that were still fighting back in other, you know, oftentimes U.S. or other imperial backed powers. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is this. With India and the uh, comment that was made about the uh, mass starvation and stuff like that by the British imperialists, we never ever see in these statistics that are put forward about communism or about communist projects a comparison in the same time frame to the amount of people who died under the average capitalist nation. Because if we look at the 900,000 plus people who have died in the last three years because of the uh, coronavirus here in the United States, while also looking at the five and a half million who have died globally, uh, this is a staggering statistic. If we look at also the for example, uh, say a three-year period in China right now, which is uh, putting forth some of the most incredible uh, developments uh, technologically, um, which you know a lot of folks want to point out and say that this is oftentimes linked to their uh, use of market uh, markets and uh, their participation in capitalism. But ultimately, we have to understand that China in less than 100 years was at, able to take the average life expectancy of being a just absolutely impoverished and exploited person, giving just about everyone in mainland China and elsewhere uh, electrification, housing, healthcare, food, education, as well as a nation that is built on continuing that project. Whereas under a, uh, you know, say a Nordic state, they have to give these things to the people in order to quell their revolutionary potential. And they do so by continuing to imperialize and colonize the global south. Whereas China does this through uh, active participation and mobilization of the masses, as well as a global project, which is based on benefiting uh especially exploited nations in Africa and Asia and Latin America and elsewhere because the very uh, project of socialism in China itself is based on this idea of human development and really giving human beings what they need to survive. I'm glad you mentioned the human development and that's all on point, Josh. I think that's so well said. We're looking at right now a chart of population and rural poverty in China. In 2012, right, not that long ago, 10 years ago, there was about close to 100 million people in China living in rural poverty. And that figure has now drastically, drastically decreased close to zero uh, after 2020. That was actually one of the goals of the Chinese Communist Party to reduce poverty in rural areas drastically. Obviously, there is still some sectors of China that, that live in poverty, but dramatically decreased hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty with Chinese socialism, with amazing constructive tendencies in China that are aimed at lifting people out of poverty, developing the means of production, depending uh, on only yourself, not relying on the Western imperialist powers. And like you said, I'm glad you mentioned Scandinavia because a lot of people the Bernie Sanders ALC types, they like to bring up uh, Sweden and Finland and Norway. A lot of people don't know that 
a lot of those countries, the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Norway, are some of the largest weapons producers in the world. They're actually one of the some of the countries that finance the Saudis and their war against the Yemeni people, the Ansar Allah Houthi movement. They make a lot of money through banking, through mining, sort of like Canada in many ways. I've talked about this with other comrades as well, that it just has better branding, basically. Uh, and China is doing this through only they're lifting people out of poverty through socialist construction, construction, not by invading other countries and engaging in, in schemes and usury and war, uh, which I think is something that's very beautiful. And another thing I want to share is that sometimes people say the best way to understand reality sometimes even is just looking at photos historically. And so the photo we're looking at, this is on the left. These are young girls in Tibet in southeastern, southwestern China who were forced into slavery as concubines, who were forced to wear uh, the neck bindings that elongated their neck. Because at that time in feudal China, having elongated necks was seen as attractive or as good looking by these Dalai Lamas who forcefully enslaved women. And a lot of Western liberals love to fetishize the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan uh, Buddhists. But there was some really horrible, oppressive shit that they did, enslaving young women, killing young women who wanted to educate themselves. And on the right, we see young Chinese communist women after the 1949 Chinese revolution, lifting their fists in the air, working together in a position of leadership, looking up. And I think it exemplifies the slogan that Mao said in his declaration of the People's Republic of China, the Chinese people have stood up. Right. And even just in the expression on the left, you know, looking down, just looking so downtrodden, oppressed, marginalized by reactionary elements, by feudalism, imperialism on the right, proletarian feminism, socialist feminism, lifting women out of poverty and oppression. And I think that was another element of the Chinese revolution that is beautiful and brilliant is to see the role of proletarian feminism how women have been lifted out of poverty, the central role, role of women. And even when me and Ophelia went to China in 2019, walking around and just seeing the role of women, the status of women, it's so much different from reactionary capitalist countries. Women in China are safer than in so many other countries. Sexual violence is treated with very harshly in China. And women overall are more safe and are in positions of power and engineers, scientists, doctors, and that is because of socialism. So I think things like that are important, even just taking a second to like look at images like this, it, it tells you all, you know, it tells you so much about uh, what's going on. I want to go to another clip from the why Mao Zedong was the most brutal tyrant clip. Again, this video has three over three million views. So it's not just any random YouTube video. This is what most people, young people in particular, are getting, are being fed uh, propaganda. This is more or less after the, uh, this is after the defeat of the Japanese, the split between the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party and the uh, establishment of the PRC. Um, so they're going to 
have some more propaganda talking points here. What happened next, in short, is that the Chinese Nationalist Party broke off all alliances with the upstarts, the Communist Party. And here's where Mao stepped in. He led an army, the Red Army, of peasants against the Nationalists. This violent reprisal wasn't without its reasons, of course. The Nationalists had killed and locked up many people affiliated with the Communist Party before the fighting. Mao then formed the Soviet Republic of China, and by 1934, 10 provinces in the country were under his Communist control. Government forces then buckled down and tried to defeat all those mostly peasant guerrillas, but the communists retreated and began what was called the Long March, basically a hard trek through the mountains. It said from about 100,000 people that started the march, around 10 to 30,000 people died on the way. The exact number is disputed. Walking 8,000 miles over treacherous territory gave Mao some stories to tell. He was in some ways a great action and intellectual hero, and this would later fuel the cult of personality. If you don't know what that is, it's when a leader becomes somewhat of a demigod, and he and his cronies, often paranoid themselves of being accused of not being devout, use propaganda, the media, posters, unrealistic stories to promote this veritable savior. Look no further than North Korea for a present example. Matters become worse in China in 1937 when the Japanese Imperial Army invaded the country. The government couldn't have internal discord and also fight Japan. The Red Army of Mao grew in size in part because of the atrocities of the Japanese. Mao's communists were asked to get on one side and they did. And together, along with help from the Allied forces, the Japanese were defeated. Where did this leave Mao? Well, in a pretty strong position. He wanted all of China, and that he got in the end. A second civil war ensued, and that ended with Mao's enemies skipping off to Taiwan. So now we have Mao the leader, and he did a lot of good things. If people got in his way, blood was often spilled, but he took land from warlords and gave it back to the people. He tried to stop opium production and cut down on addiction. He doubled the number of Chinese people getting an education. He greatly improved healthcare and women's rights. It's said because of Mao's policies, life expectancy improved quite quickly in the country. He was a champion of the rural classes, but things would take a turn for the worse. Although he had thought he had done so much good, and he had in many respects, he was still heavily criticized by those he said were on the right. Those were mostly urban folk with urban educations. We might remember many of these people were bullied, hurt, and had their lives turned upside down. And after some amount of condemnation, he embarked on a campaign of fear. His doubters had to be silenced, and they were. Mao had even allowed people to voice their concerns about how the country should be run, which came under the banner, flowers campaign, but many of those on the right expressing concern of the leadership were just sent to prison. If you think being doxxed is bad, imagine hundreds of thousands being sent to dank jail cells just for sharing an opinion. Some writers say the campaign was only there in the first place to weed out the so-called threats. In many other cases, people were executed, and it's said in every village there were executions. People also perished in labor camps, where Mao had hoped to see a reform through labor campaign change people's views. So much nonsense. He's like, if you thought doxing was bad, wait till you hear about this. It's complete nonsense. And uh, it's just crazy because one of the things that they don't talk about in the labor camps is, well, they just say labor camps and it sounds scary. But one of the things that's important to mention is that prisons in revolutionary China were very different from prisons in capitalist societies. In Chinese prisons, reactionaries, counter-revolutionaries, were treated with way more respect. They actually were encouraged to re-educate, to learn about socialism, communism, women's liberation. A lot of the people in those jails, in the prison camps, were people who, men who raped women, were landlords, were bankers, people who 
had an interest against the working class. So I think that's important to mention as well. Warlords, people who did atro atrocious things. So within a revolution, you obviously are always going to have to use some sort of authority and force. And I think that's one of the disagreements with perhaps the anarchists or liberals who are against any sort of force at all. And as Engels mentioned, you mentioned Engels earlier, and I think he's exactly relevant to this conversation. Revolutions are the most authoritarian things there are in history. You have to be authoritarian against the enemy because the enemy is always going to use the maximum amount of force against you. So the working class, oppressed class, also has to exercise force and authority against the ruling class. And this is part of what Mao, Lenin, Stalin, and others describe as the revolutionary uh, dictatorship, the democratic dictatorship of the proletarian class, where within the working class, you have radical democracy, but you have a dictatorship of the working class against the ruling class, oppressing them. And I think that's necessary in a situation where you have a lot of uh, oppression coming from the, the old ruling class. And one other thing I just want to share before I pass it to you, this is a horrible book that was produced by the synthetic left, by the fake left, the liberal left, uh, called The Authoritarian Personality, Theodore Adorno, somebody who is worshipped in quote-unquote libertarian socialist circles. And they basically talk about, they compare the communists to the Nazis. They say that the problem is authoritarianism and it's not about class. And this seems to be a recurring theme among a lot of liberals that the problem is individuals. And even in that clip we were watching, it showed the, the language they use, right? Mao had, Mao wanted all of China. He had all of uh, China under his control. They had the map of China and him staring at it. Then they had Mao staring at a mirror and smiling in a really creepy way, making it seem like the problem is the individual wanting authority and not class contradiction. So maybe, uh, uh, Josh, if you want to speak a little bit to that. So there's a lot of places I would love to take this, but probably don't have the time to. So I'll, I'll say a few things. First and foremost, if you, you know, really want to know anything about what true, you know, enslavement and imprisonment is like, I would, uh, you know, ask you to please go read George Jackson, uh, Asada Shakur, uh, uh, many other activists of the like. Uh, also, if you want to actually take a real analysis of this period of time in China, um, take it upon yourself to learn another language and begin educating yourself. Because ultimately, if you're not going to believe anyone else except yourself, then it's up to you to do these things. Otherwise, you're just shouting into the dark and no one really gives a shit. Uh, at least I don't. Um, and to this authoritarian thing, you know, this has been a complex since Engels and Marx themselves. I mean, Engels literally wrote on authority. Uh, he went over this. It's clearly a liberal uh, stopping block. And it's there for a reason. Ultimately, we are uh, completely made ignorant. We are not made to understand how governments and states function. So the state, for anyone who doesn't know, is an organized tool of violence by the uh, minority within the population. And I don't mean in some cases, obviously, that word minority is meant to mean something else. Minority as in a small percentage of the population over the majority. So historically speaking, you had to have an apparatus as a, such a small amount of people 
to actually make it so that the majority follows your will. So you develop a standing army, you develop a bureaucracy, you develop state-owned uh, enterprises like the healthcare system, and ultimately you encapsulate all forms of education, organization, and existence within a certain framework. So now working with that understanding, we have to look at this video and recognize that this person has not at any point thought of anything outside of that framework. The majority of Americans and ultimately, you know, people who live within the imperial core uh, do not think outside of this framework. I talk a lot about on my show about the shit that like my folks say and like we've talked about it before like what i grew up with with like a really like fundamentalist uh protestant and uh conservative background um and folks who think like this you know we ultimately we want to call them stupid we want to come at them and attack them and in some cases yeah maybe you want to uppercut your uncle at thanksgiving maybe he deserves it but you know at the end of the day if we actually want to change the material circumstances, we have to recognize what is making people think like that, what is making people act like that. Because no one just goes on thinking one day like, you know, black, brown, and indigenous people aren't human beings. Nobody just deposits that in their own mind. That is actively built in by the U.S., Canadian, and European settler colonial projects. Um, and it has been for hundreds of years, and that is why this framework is so strong. And that is why we have to double, triple, and quadruple our efforts to deprogram and ultimately really educate, organize, and really get with the people. One thing that is, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's funny, even this video had to acknowledge all the stuff that he was able to do for the rural population. But notice how even still in this capitalist narrative, poor people are evil because listen to how he speaks about the rural people who follow him out as if they're just these, you know, zombies who will just kill and do whatever because Mao said so. It's not logical. Nobody, I mean, look at the pandemic. You can't even get motherfuckers to wear a mask. So not for nothing, you're not going to convince millions of people to live life like that. But anyways, to my point, uh, ultimately, what we're looking at is a uh, incorrect framework uh, that is devoid from reality and useless. Uh, the same goes for this idea that authoritarianism is ultimately the worst thing to exist. The comparison between communists and Nazis is so uh, endemic that it even affects the left. Um, and so in that sense, we really have to do our due diligence to get people to not only understand, but actively participate in organization that proves that you need a certain form of leadership, a certain form of understanding, and a certain ability to essentially take what is there and make use of it all. You can't just expect that someone who's just mad at their employer is going to be able to solve all the issues facing the United States. I mean, this is a country full of contradictions down to the fact that its name itself shouldn't even be. It is not the United States. It's Turtle Island, but this is what we hear it referred to as. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, we really have to take stock of what 
actually building socialism is. It's giving people the tools and ability to take ownership of their own destiny, to take ownership of the land which was stolen from them, to take ownership of their labor which is stolen from them daily for a wage that does not sustain their life. And so in this uh, you know, period of time during the pandemic, economic collapse everywhere. We are seeing in Africa, we are seeing in Latin America, we are seeing even here in Turtle Island and across the world that people are angry. They're sick and tired of this bullshit. And yet there is no group that is coming out and taking hold of that situation and leading the people through to material gains. Now there's organizations that are doing it at local levels, state levels, you know, there's stuff that's happening. There's incredible movements to free Mumia Abu Jamal. There's incredible movements to free Leonard Peltier that makes a material difference. But at the end of the day, if we want to see the end of capitalism and imperialism, which not only we, but planet Earth, wants to see an end to, then we have to find a way to actually give people the power and control to decide how we are going to develop. We are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. I'm not trying to scare anyone here, but it's important to understand that in places like you know, we just had Comrade Libre on and the folks from revolutionary uh, Puerto Rico. Borinquen possibly is going to nonstop see hurricanes, rolling outages, poverty, a lack of resources, all because of capitalism and imperialism being unwilling and incapable fundamentally to actually attack and approach the issues facing the people of Puerto Rico. The same goes for Haiti. The same goes for Cuba. The same goes for countries all across the world that might be underwater in 20, 30 years that might not be able to be populated because there's pockets of air that can't be breathed. And half of the population might still be suffering from the subsequent symptoms of COVID-19, which is improperly uh, analyzed as a respiratory disease but is in fact a vascular disease, which will have leading and long-term effects on the heart and the brain for people who are continuously affected because we're forced to go to work, get COVID, go into quarantine, get COVID, go into quarantine. This is going to destroy the reality, the ability for people to do what we have done for hundreds of years. And if we do not actively organize and we do not actively attack that situation, not the situation 100 years ago because we're romanticizing, you know, Marxism, Leninism, and revolution, not the situation that the capitalist and imperialist media is giving to you, but the situation that people across the world are facing and actively shouting out about. You got a caravan of immigrants coming up through Mexico and the Mexican government stopped them under the influence and the instruction of the United States. If we are looking at the revolutionary projects in Chiapas, imagine what is going to happen when the United States says, we don't want that anymore. Imagine what is going to happen when Europe and the United States continue their process of further militarizing, further nuclearizing, further building up the borders. Imagine what is going to happen when we see a continuation of 
Western Asian and North African immigrants in Belarus, in Poland, and all across the country. This is the situation we are facing, and nobody is doing anything about it in the West. Nobody is doing anything that is materially changing the situation in the United States for the exploited and oppressed masses today. And so that is where we need to start. And that is what Mao did. That is what Lenin did. That is what Stalin did. That is what Fidel did. That is what Che did. That is what Nicolas Maduro is doing right now. That is what Daniel Ortega is doing right now. That's what Xi Jinping and the Communist Party and the Communist pe or the Chinese people are doing right now. And if we do not do the same here, we are actively capitulating to the capitalist imperialist system. And if you call yourself anything other than a capitulator, then you're lying to yourself. Beautifully said. So energetic, comrade Josh, always bringing that fire so inspiring and i what i think is so important about your message is the urgency i think a lot of times people don't realize how urgent violent and authoritarian capitalism is the fact that islands are literally being dragged underwater barbados puerto rico uh, and the oceania region so many areas being flooded bangladesh that's being flooded because of climate change the the desertification of forest in, in Central and South America and Africa, the rising urbanization of areas, people forced out of rural communities, they can't even farm anymore. And that's a big problem in India. So you have all these low wage workers who are being created in these urban areas. Climate change, a threat of war, Biden and the Democrats already wanting to start a war with Russia. All of these atrocities happening, deaths, massacres, of people, paramilitaries, the crackdowns on migrants, just all these simultaneous COVID, all these simultaneous crises that are going on because of capitalism, because of imperialism. But that's the role of mainstream media is not allowing us to see them as interconnected. We're only seeing the trees and not the forest. And this forest is capitalism. And we're only seeing these individual trees. Yet for socialist countries and for socialist leaders like Mao and China, Every single death, every single problem, oh, it's because of socialism. It's because of authoritarianism. And I like the comment that uh, my friend here has said, uh, libs, libertarian socialists be like, you want to oppress the same people who have destroyed your people, resources, and the whole planet? Authoritarian. And that's exactly the vibe that these liberals give off. They're just like regurgitating, defending the empire, right? Anybody who stands up and defends them, their class and their people in a revolutionary way is authoritarian, is evil. And I also like what you said about critiquing um, the people who are puritanical, because there are, just to kind of wrap up here, you know, there are people who kind of sit on the sidelines and say, oh, well, China is capitalist now. China is no longer following the vision of Mao. The, and, and a lot of these we would consider uh, ultra leftist people who are puritanical who view Marxism as a religion that is static and not as a science that is flexible and dynamic and changing. And ironically, Mao was somebody who said that Marxism constantly needs to adapt and change. That is part of the dialectical nature of Marxism, that it's bending, flexing, changing to the new material reality. And the ironic part is that a lot of people calling themselves Maoists in particular will oppose in any way changing and adapting to the 21st century, having a, a small market sector under the control of the Communist Party, 
They they repeat a lot of the mainstream media lies about China. They say that China's imperialist, that it's just as bad as the U.S. What is your analysis and reaction to, especially some of the young people who are who are saying this? Because I I think unfortunately this tends to be common, especially in the West, right, where you have people who maybe are interested in Mao and, and they like Mao, but they kind of fetishize that earlier version and are doing nothing about the present or don't even support China at all today. So to the folks who we might call uh, purist, I would ultimately, uh, you know, implore that each and every single one of us gets organized. Um, there are so many ways to actively involve yourself uh, today. Um, and a lot of these ideas come from, as we discussed before the stream, uh, book worship, which Mao himself spoke about. I would like a little segment at the end to give some recommendations of Mao works to check out. But anyways, uh, in your question, I think one of the most important things that we have to understand is that, as you said, Marxism is an open-ended science. It is actively absorbing material and reality in order to pump out an analysis. The best way to understand it, you know, in, in my brain, if this works for people, it's kind of like the same idea of like a wood chipper, right? But the wood chipper itself is like the framework of, uh, you know, a revolutionary Marxist who you throw in the material and out the end comes uh, a new approach, a new analysis, a new, uh, uh, you know, revolutionary. And in that way, we mean revolutionary in that it's materialist. It hasn't been, uh, you know, advocated for by many. It's it's a new idea, and it's also capable, in theory, of resolving the issues that it's intended to resolve. <clears throat> so, in a lot of cases, folks who have critiques about uh, China, you have a lot of the same people who are calling, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Ortega not a socialist. Folks who are calling Evo Morales and Luis Arce not a socialist, and uh, you know, there's a few things and people I want to shout out before I go into my analysis. First off, we got one in the chat and we got one on the video. Salifu and uh, Ramiro doing their part, going to Nicaragua, going to Cuba, going to China, engaging with the people. You can look up Friends of the ATC. You can introduce yourself. You can speak to them about joining a delegation and you can go find out for your own fucking self whether or not the Nicaraguan Sandinista revolution is socialist or not. You can go put your hands in that soil and work right there next to the rural people and you can tell me whether or not this is a socialist mass-based movement. And at the end of the day, also I would like to shout out uh, all kinds of folks like uh, the Red Nation, like Bands of Turtle Island, uh, and plenty of others who are doing the great work to actively build relationships between ongoing, you know, movements across this country, across the world, joining delegations, joining, you know, uh, events. You have to understand that just about every group that you can break up within society, every characterization of different you know, 
conglomerates of people is facing extreme exploitation and oppression right now, is facing their own particular contradictions, which other people do not oftentimes take the time to analyze and understand. And if that is true, then one of the most important things that we need to do is we have to bring together the people who are actively organizing and trying to correct these issues. We have to, at the very least, talk to one another. That's what we're doing here. The second thing we got to do is we got to build. We got to get with the people, man. You can't be spending all your time talking to your homies who are obsessed with marks like you are. Like, that's cool. You can learn. But you got to fucking unionize your job, dude. You got to go fucking talk to your neighbors and figure out if they have food in their fridge right now. You got to find out if your folks are vaccinated. And you got to spend the time trying to discuss with them the reasons why taking this pandemic seriously and doing what we each individually can under our own guidance to stay safe is ultimately the most important thing that we can be doing. There are groups of people who in this might say, well, I don't want to get a vaccine. There are groups of people who say, well, I can't leave my house, so I can't you know, go door to door and talk to my neighbors. There are actual people who are incapable in some way of organizing in ways which we have seen before. But everyone has a fucking role to play. Every single person can do something as little as taking, I don't know, a blanket that is at the bottom of your blanket bin and giving that to someone on the side of the fucking road because it was negative 20 degrees in New York yesterday and people fucking died. People died because they didn't have a home. People died because they didn't have food. You can do something about this. You can give someone a meal. If you don't know how to cook, you can fucking buy two Big Macs and you can give it to the first person you see. You can do something. And from starting there, we can qualitatively change that into something more. Because if you have a spirit of community, of coming together, that is something that is desperately missing from the world. That is why the pandemic is still going. On top of how the states across the world have been handling this, it is because the average person across the world really has no connection to the people who they are living with every single day. Because of alienation and isolation that is so fundamental to the capitalist system that it cannot be ignored. In this very same light, by doing so, we are already attacking those issues. Community is being built by simply having conversations, building relations. Anyone that's making content right now, you got to be getting just about anyone else that you can talk to on your show to be presenting incredibly important points. You got to be building with other content creators, but you got to also realize that content creation is not going to change the world, man. Like it's incredibly important, but it's here for when people are already thinking about this. We got to be having the conversations to get them to come check out unmasking imperialism or in defense of liberation or whichever. We got to have the conversations to get people to read socialism, utopian and scientific or the Red Deal, uh, you know, by Red Media. We have to start somewhere because no one, not the Democratic Party, not the Green Party, not the Libertarians, no one is building in a way that is taking a revolutionary approach to material change. If it were, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If it were, we would all be getting organized because that's what we want to do, right? Again, if you think that you're some revolutionary, get fucking organized. This is the shit that I got to tell myself every day because I'm up in the books. You know, I sit on my ass at work and I read and it's like being in a fantasy land. But then I'm like, I just came home and smoked weed all night and then went to bed. I completely drove by, you know, 
people that I probably could have talked to that were on the side of the road, seen about helping them, gave them a five instead of getting out of the car and having a conversation with them because I wanted to get home. That's a moment of self-critique that we got to do every single day. And I am learning. I am not the expert. Don't listen to me. I'm just some dude. Go organize. Go get involved because we are facing so many forms of death-defying exploitation. We can't just let the capitalists win. We can't just let the imperialists keep driving the ship. We have to take control. We have to give people the opportunity to save themselves from the sinking ship at the very fucking least. If we're not willing to do that, I don't care what you think about China. I don't care what you think about these countries. You're not a fucking communist. You're not a socialist. You're a fucking loser. You're a liberal and you're not doing shit. Wow, mic drop. I'm going to save that and save it on my phone whenever I'm feeling pessimistic or down. I'm just going to listen to that and I'm going to remember this pep talk. That's exactly the pep talk that we if all I can, need to hear. If I can say one more thing also. Of course, go for it. Because because real quick, that that's like, you know, that's a great line. But again, I'm about to log off and probably finish reading, uh, you know, Blood in My Eye for my reading group tonight. That's probably going to be it. You know, each day we have opportunities to do things, but the more that we connect with one another, the more that we build those relations, the easier that becomes and the more monumental it becomes. Because now instead of one person at your job talking about unionizing, you got 10. Instead of one person walking down your street handing out food, you got five. This is the material change that is necessary. And if we do it together, if we actually build with one another, we will see that this is the way the world has to go because this is the way the world can be saved. We need revolution. We need every part of the revolution and we need every part of society to play their role within the revolution. Beautifully said. And one of the quotes that comes to mind from Mao Zedong, just to kind of wrap up, Mao said, quote, if you want to know the taste of a pear, you must change the pair by eating it yourself. If you want to know the theory and methods of revolution, you must take part in revolution. All genuine knowledge originates in direct experience. And that's exactly what comrade Josh was saying. Uh, Josh, just wrapping up here, I know you mentioned uh, you wanted um, to cite a few works of mouth to check out. Any suggestions? Yeah, so I took down works that I have read myself and enjoyed. Um, so all of these can be found on YouTube, either by looking up Marxist Leninist theory or dank audio stash. They each have, uh, um, playlists that are, uh, chairman mouth. So the first one that I think is really important is, uh, especially in our conversation would probably be where do correct ideas come from? This is incredibly important work, but building off of that, I'm just going to list off all the ones I took down. So these are all different titles. If you want to write them down, if not, I can screenshot it and send it to you and we can, you know, give it to people somehow. But uh, it's, it's where do correct ideas come from on practice and on contradiction. A single spark can start a prairie fire. Combat liberalism. The Chinese people cannot be cowed by the atomic bomb. U.S. imperialism is a paper tiger on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. 
both concerning and critique of Stalin's economic problems of socialism in the USSR. And then for, you know, a little bit more philosophical, you can look at his talks on philosophy. And I think that if we are able to, in the spirit of this video, in the spirit of Mao, and in the spirit of revolutionary communism, take these works and use them to evolve our thinking, but also our action, we will see qualitative changes in our own lives that will be able to push us forward and give us the encouragement and therefore be able to encourage others in a way that we need in this moment where revolutionary optimism is just about drained, where the average person thinks about, you know, not for nothing, killing themselves, taking drugs, the world ending a thousand times more often than they think about capitalism and imperialism coming to an end. So much that fucking Zizek is the one who said that quote. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah we, uh, we need to organize, we need to build, and we need to love one another. Y'all need to take care of yourselves. Mental health, yeah, I know there's the whole like liberal side of it, but hit up your homies every so often and be like, hey, I love you. I know it's weird, say it, I don't care. Take care of one another, take care of yourself and really understand that a revolution is based on the people. And if the people aren't well, if the people aren't healthy, then neither will the revolution be. Wow, well said, Josh, comrade Josh, and so much great advice there. I really appreciate and love that. Check in with your comrades, your friends, your family, ask how people are doing because with so much isolation and alienation and crises, it's important to be there for people, even if it's something small, emotional support, a blanket, a meal, being able to see where you can help. Really inspiring, man. I, I feel so energized and inspired from everything that you said. Uh, we spoke with comrade Josh Finn. Josh is a revolutionary communist from New York. Shout out to my home state of New York, host of In Defense of Liberation. Please check out In Defense of Liberation on iTunes and give them a five-star review and subscribe which works towards educating people on a true proletarian uh, revolution. And Josh is also involved with real life on the ground activism and organizing. Josh, it's been a real pleasure, man, uh, talking to you. I love speaking to you all the time. I hope you have a great week. Uh, thank you so much, comrade. And we're gonna go out to some revolutionary music in defense of Chairman Mao. Thank you everybody for watching and listening. Take care. Like a 
headphones up, bandana across the face, dog. Always, dog. Whatever you say, dog. Rifle to the sky, bandana across the face. I learned the speeches and teachers of Malcolm X. Nooses around her neck, made Malcolm drop the little, they capitalized the X. He and the men square drum, make the big go dumb. Compel sisters in the mountains back home to grab guns. My lungs pump, Los Angeles small, strong. I handle my M1, like gorilla villagers in the Vietcong. Your homegirl's favorite I'm the maker of the music For the busboy and the waitress Every blue-collar hero piece The blue-collar G.O.A.O. Saba Did you hear about the talks in the White House? Iran is now a new threat I told you you were up next American rampage to the rain of Middle East Left up, jump the boogie, put a bullet inside And let the gorillas and government collide in a fight To make the poverty disseminate Bullets fire hella straight Showdown in China, down in downtown L.A. All day, dog, whatever you say, dog Megaphones up Bandana across the face, dog. Always, dog. Whatever you say, dog. Rifle to the sky. Bandana across the face, dog. All day, dog. Whatever you say, dog. Megaphones up. Bandana across the face, dog. Always, dog. Whatever you say, dog. Rifle.